Welcome back, Hemming Brainiacs, to the Hemming Brainiac Podcast of Excellence. We are talking about Chapter 63. The saga is over, hopefully. Uh, what would it take for Philip to win back your respect from here? Staff All 15 said, My heart sank when Mildred said, I'm getting married. I thought she was playing a game with him, and he is the lucky one. I hope we are done with this disaster of a relationship. Wow. Yeah, my heart would have sank too, but I kind of knew immediately what she was saying, that it wasn't him. Um, can you imagine? Oh my god. What would the rest of this book be if they got married? I'm pretty sure... Wait, sorry, I read that wrong. I Am Norwegian said this. It's pretty subtle. <laughs> I read that completely wrong. It's pretty subtle, but this chapter provides a small clue as to Philip's sexuality. And he has sent a screenshot of the words, Philip was gay. <laughs> Just a slight hint there. Philip was gay. And for some reason in the ebook that you're reading, it's con condensed Philip was gay into one word, which makes it even funnier. It was three words in the version that I read. Swim said the mum official says, Ah, are you saying M has given us a subliminal message? Alas, the term also can mean careful, carefree, cheerful, or bright and showy, which fits into this chapter's context. It certainly is a loaded word, though. A gay woman was a prostitute. A gay man, a womanizer. And a gay house, a brothel. An example is a letter read to a London court in 1885 during the prosecution of a brothel madam and the procuress, Mary Jeffreys, that had been written by a girl while slaved to a French brothel. I write to tell you it is a gay house. Some captains come in the other night and the mistress wanted us to sleep with them. The use of gay to mean homosexual was often an extension of its application to prostitute. A gay boy was a young man or boy serving male clients. Similarly, a gay cat was a young male apprenticed to an older hobo and commonly exchanging sex and other services for protection and tutelage. Jeez. <laughs> the application... Why are we... What is, I think we've gone way off track here, but I'm interested, so let's keep going. The application to homosexuality was, own, was also an extension of the words sexualized connotation of carefree and uninhibited, which implies a willingness to disregard conventional or respectable sexual mores. Such usage documented as early as the 1920s was likely present before the 20th century, although it was initially more commonly used to imply heterosexuality, unconstrained lifestyles. The term's use as a reference to male homosexuality may date as early as the late 19th century, but its use gradually increased in the mid-20th century. Very interesting. The old um, F word, um, going down that line, and I'm speaking not of the... Oh, I suppose I'm just going to have to say the word now. The word faggot. Um, <laughs> I don't know why I'm laughing. Um, they The old meanings behind that word were quite interesting too. Originally, if you go back far enough, it just sort of meant something burdensome um, like something that was uh, awkward 
to carry, I suppose. So like uh, the bundle of sticks, you all heard that it used to mean a bundle of sticks. Uh, and then from there, it meant something or someone who was sort of difficult to carry. So a person who was sort of a blight on a community or, um, you know, something that was more of a burden to their, their town or their, their wherever they were than of any benefit. Um, so then as a derogatory term it, term, it got used to describe someone who was a kind of burden on society. So like, you know, um, it might have been a derogatory term for like someone who's old and decrepit and, and can't be of any use anymore. And, you know, everyone just has to sort of look after them and they're not really contributing much to the society. That would have been called by that F word. Uh, and then from there, that was why it got, I suppose, skewed as a derogatory term for homosexuals um, to sort of imply that, you know, they're not of benefit to a society, um, which is extremely insulting and offensive. But I really wish we could revert back to the previous meaning of just a generic person who is a burden to society pain in the ass sort of thing you know um wouldn't that be good i'm gonna reclaim that word yeah i mean wish me luck <laughs> i'm bringing it back guys <laughs> um but i don't know it's kind of a shame that we can't say that word anymore because it had so many meanings before it had that meaning and then that meaning ruined it for everyone you know intrepa said this he suffered no pain that's a good sign right you know, I don't know how good of a sign that is. The last line was kind of startling. Um, oh, and I forgot to put, I've put the wrong last line in. The last line was, he smoked a pipe before he went to bed, but he could hardly keep his eyes open. He suffered no pain. He fell into a heavy sleep almost as soon as his head touched the pillow. It's like something has been unloaded from his mind, you know, like he was actually finally able to get a good rest. But also, it, it's so soon after it happened, and he was so obsessed that I wonder if it's that first stage of grief, denial, and he's perfectly okay. I know that if I've ever had like a big sort of, you know, tragic blow of some kind, a breakup or, you know, a death in the family or whatever, I do get that little grace period of like a day where I actually am like, you know, I'm handling this really well. I don't even feel that upset. And then, you know... You get a day later or something and then it all comes flooding in. I feel like that's what's happening. Laura Weistich said this, I guess some self-reflection where he realizes he was being ridiculous and looks back at his past self either to laugh or to cringe. Oh, that's you saying that's what it would take for him to win back your respect. Yeah, some self-reflection. A lot of it, actually. I do feel bad that he failed the exam this time. Sounds like maybe he put in some effort but just froze when it came down to it. You know what would make me respect him a bit more from here, a little bit, would be if he just really focused on his studies, put this whole thing behind him and just, you know, he's got a lot of redeeming himself to do. That wouldn't win back all of my respect, but I would respect that as a move from him. You know, just focus back on what's important, mate. Do your studies, do a good job, get your qualification. All right.
and learn your bloody lesson. <laughs> Next time you're interested in a girl, keep a level head for crying out loud. All right, that's the conversation. Here is an advertisement for you. Uh, Patreon.com slash The Hemingway List. That's what I would like to advertise. Patreon.com slash The Hemingway List. You can support the podcast there. This is chapter 64. But about three in the morning, Philip awoke and could not sleep again. He began to think of Mildred. Oh dear. He tried not to, but could not help himself. He repeated to himself the same thing time after time till his brain reeled. It was inevitable that she should marry. Life was hard for a girl who had to earn her own living, and if she found someone who could give her a comfortable home, she should not be blamed if she accepted. Oh, I completely just lost my place. She should not be blamed if she accepted. Philip acknowledged that from her point of view, it would have been madness to marry him. Only love could have made such poverty bearable, and she did not love him. It was no fault of hers, it was a fact that must be accepted like any other. Philip tried to reason with himself, he told himself that deep down in his heart was mortified pride. His passion had begun in wounded vanity, and it was this at bottom which caused now a great part of his wretchedness. He despised himself as much as he despised her. Then he made plans for the future, and the same plans over and over again, interrupted by recollections of kisses on her soft pale cheek, and by the sound of her voice, which was trailing, with its trailing accent. He had a great deal to work of work to do. Since in the summer he was taking chemistry, as well as the two examinations he had failed in. He had separated himself from his friends at the hospital, but now he wanted companionship. There was one happy occurrence. Hayward, a fortnight before, had written to say that he was passing through London and asked him to dinner, but Philip, unwillingly to be bothered, had refused. He was coming back for the season, and Philip made up his mind to write to him. He was thankful when eight o'clock struck and he could get up. He was pale and weary, but when he had bathed, dressed, and had breakfast, he felt himself joined up again with the world at large and his pain was a little easier to bear. He did not like going to lectures that morning, but went instead to the army and navy stores to buy Mildred a wedding present. After much wavering, he settled on a dressing bag. It cost twenty pounds, which was much more than he could afford, but it was showy and vulgar. He knew she would be very aware exactly how much it cost. He got a melancholy satisfaction in choosing a gift, which would give her pleasure, and at the same time indicate for herself the contempt he had for her. Philip had looked forward with apprehension to the day on which Mildred was to be married. He was expecting an intolerable anguish, and it was with relief that he got a letter from Haywood on Saturday morning that he was coming up early on that very day and would fetch Philip to help him find rooms. Philip, anxious to be distracted, looked up a timetable and discovered the only train Haywood was likely to come by, he went to meet him, and the reunion of the friends was enthusiastic. They left the luggage at the station and set off gaily. Hayward characteristically proposed that first of all they should go for an hour to the National Gallery. He had not seen pictures for some time, and he stated that it needed a, he needed a, he stated that it needed a glimpse to set him in tune with life. 
Philip, for months, had had no one with whom he could talk of art and books. Since the day, since the Paris days, Haywood had immersed himself in the modern French versifiers, and such a plethora of poets is there in France, he had several new geniuses to tell Philip about. They walked through the gallery, pointing out to one another their favourite pictures. One subject led to another. They talked excitedly. The sun was shining and the air was warm. Let's go and sit in the park, said Hayward. We'll look for rooms after luncheon. The spring was pleasant there. It was a day upon which one felt it good merely to live. The young green of the trees was exquisite against the sky, and the sky, pale and blue, was dappled with little white clouds. At the end of the ornamental water was the grey mass of the horse guards. The ordered elegance of the scene had the charm of an 8th century picture. It reminded you not of Watteau, whose landscapes are so idyllic that they recall only the woodland glens seen in dreams, but the more prosaic Jean-Baptiste Pater. Philip's heart was filled with lightness. He realised that he had only read before that art, for there was art in the manner in which he looked upon nature, might liberate the soul from pain. They went to an Italian restaurant for luncheon and ordered themselves a fiaschetto of Cinati. Lingering over the meal, they talked on. They reminded one another of the people they had known at Heidelberg. They spoke of Philip's friends in Paris. They talked of books and pictures and morals, life. And suddenly Philip heard a, co- a clock strike three. He remembered that by this time Mildred was married. He felt a sort of stitch in his heart, and for a minute or two he could not hear what Hayward was saying. But he filled his glass with chinati. He was accustomed to alcohol and it had gone to his head. Sorry, he was unaccustomed to alcohol and it had gone to his head. For the time, at all events, he was free from care. His quick brain had lain idle for so many months that he was intoxicated now with conversation. He was thankful to have someone to talk to who would interest himself in the things that interested him. I say, don't let's waste this beautiful day in looking for rooms. I'll put you up tonight. You can look for rooms tomorrow or Monday. All right, what shall we do? answered Hayward. Let's get on a penny steamboat and go down to Greenwich. The idea appealed to Hayward and they jumped into a cabin cab which took them to Westminster Bridge they got on the steamboat just as he was sheer, as she was starting. Presently, Philip, a smile on his lips, spoke. I remember when I first went to Paris, Clutton, I think it was, gave a long disclosure on the subject that beauty is put into things by painters and poets. They create beauty. In themselves, there is nothing to choose between the campanile of Giotto and a factory chimney. And then beautiful things grow rich with emotion that they have aroused in succeeding generations. That is why old things are more beautiful than modern. The ode on a Grecian urn is more lovely now than when it was written, because for a hundred years lovers have read it and the sick at heart taken comfort in its lines. Philip left Hayward to infer what in the passing scene has suggested these words to him, and it was a delight to know that he could safely leave the inference. It was in sudden reaction from the life he had been leading for so long that he was now deeply affected. The delicate iridescence of the London air gave the softness of a pastel to the grey stone of the buildings and in the wharfs and stone houses, storehouses. There was the severity of grace of a Japanese print. They went further down in the splendid channel, a symbol of the great empire, 
broadened and it was crowded with traffic. Philip thought of the painters and the poets who had made all these things so beautiful and his heart was filled with gratitude. They came to the Pool of London and who can describe its majesty? The imagination thrills and heaven knows what figures people still broad stream dr johnson with boswell by his side and old peppies going on board a man o war the pageant of english history and romance and high adventure philip turned to hayward with shining eyes dear charles dickens he murmured smiling a little at his own emotion aren't you rather sorry you chucked painting asked hayward no i suppose you like doctoring no i hate it but there was nothing else to do. The drudgery of the first two years is awful, and unfortunately I haven't got the scientific temperament. Well, you can't go on changing professions. Oh, no, I'm going to stick with this. I think I shall like it better when I get into the wards. I have an idea that I'm more interested in people than in anything else in the world, and as far as I can see, it's the only profession in which you have your freedom. You carry your knowledge in your head. With a box of instruments and a few drugs, you can make your living anywhere. Aren't you going to take a practice, then? Not for a good long time, at any rate, Philip answered. As soon as I've got through my hospital appointments, I shall get a ship. I want to go to the east. The Malay Archipelago, Siam, China, and all that sort of thing. And then I shall take odd jobs. Something always comes along. Cholera duty in India. Things like that. I want to go from place to place. I want to see the world. The only way a poor man can do that is by going in for the medical... They came to the Greenwich then, the noble building of Indigo Jones faced the river grandly. I say, look, that must be the place where poor Jack dived into the mud for pennies, said Philip. They wandered in the park, ragged children were playing in it, and it was noisy with their cries. Here and there old seamen were basking in the sun. There was an air of a hundred years ago. It seemed a, seems a pity you wasted two years in Paris, said Hayward waste look at the movement of that child look at the pattern which the sun makes on the ground shining through the trees look at the sky why i should never have seen that sky if i hadn't been to paris hayward thought that philip choked a sob and he looked at him with astonishment what's the matter with you nothing i'm sorry to be so damn emotional but for six months i've been starved for beauty you used to be so matter of fact it's very interesting to hear you say that Damn it all, I don't want to be interesting, laughed Philip. Let's go and have a stodgy tea. All right, that's the end of the chapter, a stodgy tea. Thank you very much for listening to that. I'll see you tomorrow.